Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory on, I, I hate to say, a somewhat cold night in Tucson, Arizona, but we have many people watch us on the web, and there are places where it's a lot colder than it is here. Uh, we do welcome you uh, who are watching us streaming on the World Wide Web at www.as.arizona.edu or watching the podcast on iTunes U. And for those of you who do watch our podcasts over the internet, there was not a public evening selection two weeks ago. That's because we had a special presentation at our planetarium to see the new upgraded equipment, and that's something that we weren't able to podcast. And I want to thank those of you who did attend two weeks ago for your patience. We didn't expect such a large crowd, and especially for those of you who came early and had to wait an hour for the next show. Thank you again for your patience. Um, I also want to bring to your attention we have had a change in schedule, and it's because of that darn College of Science lecture series. They have always done six lectures, right? Six lectures beginning the first week of February. Well, I wanted to revise this, so it's a good thing I went and checked their schedule. It's my fault for not checking it. This year, the, in spring of 2015, the College of Science lecture series is going to be called Life in the Universe on Astrobiology, and they're doing seven lectures. Yeah, and Guy Cosomagno is speaking on January 26th, all right, from the Vatican. So I can't have Michael Chris here on the 26th talking at the same time Brother Guy is speaking at Centennial. So as you can see, I have moved Michael Chris's talk on the crime of Galileo, I have moved it to April the 6th. So when you come back from Christmas break, there will only be one public evening lecture in January, That'll be Daniel Stark on January 12th. Then starting on January 26th, for seven Mondays in a row, there will be a talk related to astrobiology over in Centennial Hall. And please note, we start at 7.30, but the College of Science lectures begin at 7 p.m. over there. We then will come back after the U of A's spring break. Gertina Bezla will speak to us on March the 23rd, Michael Chris on April 6th. April 20th, I'll tell you, I invited Mark Sykes because the Dawn mission will get to Sirius next spring. It's a series next spring, not Sirius. Yeah, wow. Wow, that'd be great. Series. And so I have asked Mark Sykes to give a talk on Dawn at Ceres, because I always like it when these space missions get to someplace new and to see the first close-up images of the former planet, former asteroid, now dwarf planet, Ceres. And he hasn't gotten back to me, so I've got to push on him. I know he's very busy, but uh, hopefully that's what our April 20th lecture will be all about. So, without further ado, oh, I'd like to remind you, if you are a student, here for an assignment. I am the one who will validate your assignment at this table at the end of the question and answer period. And I know it's cold, but that means it's also clear. The telescope is open. If you want to go up to the 21-inch Raymond E. White reflector at the conclusion of the lecture, it will be open for your viewing pleasure. All right, so let's introduce tonight's speaker. Yes, question? Okay, introduce tonight's speaker, uh, Karen Sandstrom received her bachelor's degree in astronomy, excuse me, astrophysics and physics, physics and astrophysics at Harvard, okay? Uh, okay, I won't say anything more. Um, 
Then she received her PhD in astronomy at the University of California at Berkeley. After that, she went to Heidelberg, where she spent four years, right, as a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute für Astronomie, up on the hill, on the Königstuhl, overlooking <laughs> the beautiful city of Heidelberg, and uh, at where, by the way, the uh, director is a former U of A graduate, U of A PhD. Then she came here about a year and a half ago. She is our Bach Fellow. Uh, the Bach Fellowship is a postdoctoral fellowship here at Stewart Observatory named in honor of our fourth director, Bart Bach, Bart J. Bach, who was, he and his wife were like the experts on the Milky Way. And after he passed in 1983, uh, money was raised for an endowment to pay for a special fellowship. And as I've told you before, in connection with the Hubble Fellowships, fellowships are really neat because the astronomer isn't beholden to anyone's grant, right? They don't have to do what their boss, they don't have a boss, right? They're free to do the sort of research that they want to do. And so Karen has been our Bach Fellow for the last year and a half. Her specialties are the interstellar medium of nearby galaxies. And she observes in longer wavelength uh, light, like infrared and radio. So without further ado, I would like to call upon our Bach Fellow, Dr. Karen Sandstrom, to give a lecture on the topic, Our Dusty Universe. <laughs> All right, well, thank you all very much for coming out tonight to hear this. Um, I'm very excited because today I get to tell you about my favorite subject in all of astrophysics, and that is interstellar dust. And um, as you can imagine, since I am an astrophysicist, um, that means I spent a lot of time thinking about interstellar dust and how awesome it is. So I hope I can share a little bit of that excitement with you today and um, leave you with some understanding of why dust is so important and why we might want to devote a lot of time and effort to studying it. So to start, um, when we look out into a galaxy, in between all of the stars, there's a very dilute gas uh, mixed in with dust that we call the interstellar medium. And this occurs in every galaxy, um, a little bit of gas or a lot of gas and some dust mixed into that. Um, and the interstellar medium is really the guts of a galaxy. It's where a lot of the exciting stuff happens, um, where a lot of important processes take place. And one of the most important processes is formation of new stars. And that occurs out of this big pile of gas and dust that we have sitting around in galaxies. So the interstellar medium is what is forming new stars. And as they evolve and eventually die, they return some of the material that they have created and processed back into the interstellar medium. So this material is enriched in the heavy elements that stars produce. And a lot of those heavy elements are what make up these dust grains that pervade the interstellar medium along with all of the gas. So when we look at this gas and dust in the Milky Way, we can see that um, by mass, only about 1% of the interstellar medium is dust. And so that doesn't sound like a whole lot of material, but dust actually plays a, a very crucial role in the interstellar medium because it can interact with light at a variety of different wavelengths. So there's a lot more gas out there, 
but gas um, has to interact with light at very specific wavelengths of light. So, you know, if you imagine an atom, uh, a photon of light can excite one of its electrons up into a higher energy level, but that only happens at very specific wavelengths. Dust can interact with light over many, many wavelengths. And so even if there's only a tiny little bit of it, it plays a very crucial role in how the interstellar medium works. So to get started, um, I want to talk to you first about how we figured out in the first place that there was dust out there. And just by looking at this image, I think you probably can get the first hint at why we, we figured this out. Um, dust blocks light from getting to us. So when we look at this image of the Milky Way, you can see this big dust lane and all of these features, these clouds of dust, that if you didn't know any better, you'd think you know, that maybe was empty space in all of those regions. But actually, that turns out to be just these big clouds of interstellar material where the dust is blocking the light from getting to us. So before we understood that, um, a lot of people you know, attempted to make a map of, of where we sat in the cosmos, of what our galaxy looked like. And this is one of those maps that was made by Caroline and William Herschel. And what they assumed to make this map is that you could see stars all the way to the edge of the galaxy. So you could see all of the stars. Um, but of course, that assumption is wrong because of dust. And what they ended up with is this map where here is where they think the sun is. And this is what they think the Milky Way would look like. And you can tell it looks kind of nothing like what we actually think our galaxy looks like. And the main reason for that is dust. And a lot of these features, actually, these very sharp features, um, you can relate back to what we now know are clouds of gas and dust in the Milky Way. So our early perceptions of what the universe looked like were greatly influenced by this um, interstellar dust that's blocking the light. And people knew, you know, um, for a long time, even, in seven, in, even the Herschels at the time realized that something was blocking light, that this probably wasn't what the Milky Way looked like. Um, but there was no real answer as to what that stuff was until much later. And one of the experiments that really let us understand that there were small particles of dust out there that were blocking light um, was done by Robert Trumpler in about 1930. So he uh, did a test where he took star clusters like, like this one right here, and he figured out um, what their, their angular size on the sky was, how big they should look. And then you can put star clusters, you can find them at a great variety of distances throughout the galaxy. And you can compare how the close-by ones look to the very distant ones. And so that's what he did. Um, he made observations of a whole bunch of star clusters. And what he found is that star clusters that are further away look even fainter than we think they should look based on their distance. They also look redder than the, the nearby star clusters that are very similar. So um, this is a plot from his paper showing this effect of the distance. And what he's showing here is that um, when you look at the distance you would uh, put these clusters at based on how big they look, right? If you, if you take something and move it very far away from you, it's going to look smaller. And you can predict how small it should look at various distances away from you. So you can use the, the size you observe to measure its distance. So that's what's plotted on this axis. Then the same object at different distances also looks fainter, right? So just because it's further away, it looks fainter to you. 
So if you know how bright it is, based on what you observe its brightness to be, you can infer another distance. And that's the distance based on its brightness. And so that's what's plotted on this x-axis here. And so what he found is that as you go to more and more distant clusters of stars, these things are fainter, they appear fainter than they should based on the distance you get from their size. And as I mentioned earlier, they also appear redder. And the, the redder thing you can understand, I'm sure all of you understand very well living in Tucson, if you go outside and it's just been a dust storm or there's some forest fire somewhere, you look at the sunset and it's very, very, very red compared to um, a normal sunset. And that's because of the effect of these small particles blocking blue light from getting to you preferentially. And I'll explain a little bit more about that later. But Trumpler's observation was that these clusters are fainter than he thought they should look, and they're redder. And what he concluded from that is this. So the interstellar light absorption may be a consequence of light scattering by small, small particles, fine cosmic dust thinly spread out through the vast spaces occupied by our Milky Way system. So I think it's always great to hear from these earlier papers. They were much more poetic in a way than a lot of the papers we write today. And I think that's a very nice statement of, uh, of our understanding of this interstellar dust. So before going any further, um, I want to spend a few moments um, explaining why it is you should even care about interstellar dust. Um, well, I mean, number one, as you can already see from this far in the talk, that all of the pretty pictures of space are of dust. <laughs> so I get to show you all of the really nice, beautiful images from a whole bunch of telescopes, and the most pretty thing is always dust. Of course, I may be biased. Um, but why should you care about dust um, aside from the beautiful images? Well, the first, role, uh, first reason, and I mentioned this um, in the first slide there, is that in the interstellar medium, <clears throat> dust plays absolutely key roles in how it functions and how new stars are formed. Um, and that's because dust can interact with light at many different wavelengths. Um, and one of the most important ways that it interacts with light is by blocking it. So um, the, 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 UV, the light from young stars can get attenuated by the dust. It can get blocked. Now this is important because in order to form new stars, you need to have regions of space where gas can get very cold and very dense. And if it's continually being bombarded with all the radiation from all the other stars in the galaxy, it's very difficult for it to get as cold and as dense as it needs to get in order to form new stars. And dust here comes very in handy because since it can block this light, it can actually shield um, different regions of the galaxy to the level at which they can get cold enough and dense enough to form stars. So dust plays a key role in shielding newly forming stellar nurseries from the harsh radiation of all these other stars in the Milky Way or any other galaxy. So that's one reason. There are a lot of them. I could give you a whole other talk that's just reasons about why dust is important in the ISM, but I figured you might get more bored with that, so we'll move on. <laughs> Another reason um, you should always be concerned about dust is that because anytime we want to study something that's not really just in the immediate vicinity of the sun, we have to look through the dust that's in the Milky Way to observe it. Um, so this is a map of the whole sky uh, showing the amount of Milky Way dust that's along every line, uh, every direction you can look out of the galaxy. So you can see that there's dust 
over the whole sky. Um, some regions, like this is the plain of the Milky Way, there's a whole lot of dust. But even when you look directly out of the top of the Milky Way, there's still plenty of dust there. So all of our observations of anything in the Milky Way and anything extragalactic at some level is contaminated by dust that's in the way. So from, if, you're, if you're not interested in the dust itself, you may be interested because you have to take it out of your other observations in order to see, see things at, all over the universe. Another reason to care about dust is that dust is a really great tool for studying galaxies all across the universe, even the most distant galaxies we can look at. Um, and that's because dust emits infrared light, and I'm going to talk a lot about that in just a few slides. But with telescopes like the Herschel Space Observatory or the Spitzer Space Telescope um, and a bunch of other very cool observatories, you can observe this infrared light and in fact, you can see it all the way across the universe in the very youngest galaxies. Um, so this image here may look like static to you, but in fact, this is an image taken by the Herschel Space Telescope, and every single point on here, all of these little dots are galaxies. So with a very deep image, Herschel could see galaxies um, across a huge range of distance in the universe, and that's what this looks like. In fact, when you're looking at other things other than this very deep image, the, the noise, so the confusion from all of these background galaxies you see is, is what dominates the, the noise of your observations. So if you were to put a very faint star or a galaxy that's nearby on top of this, sometimes this huge multitude of galaxies is even brighter than some of the things you're trying to observe. So, um, I mean, this is both very cool and sometimes annoying, <laughs> but mostly just really, really cool. <laughs> okay, and one final reason uh, why you might want to care about dust, and this is a very self-centered reason, is that almost all of the heavy elements that are necessary for making up things like Earth and humans um, and everything else we interact with um, was once in the form of dust grains. So in the Milky Way's interstellar medium, um, a large fraction of the heavy elements are actually in dust grains. So those dust grains then, when um, you know, gas is collapsing, or when a chunk of the interstellar medium collapses to form a star, those, that gas and dust then forms a disk around this star, and as time goes on, dust grains can coagulate and get bigger and form planets. And that is the origin of most of the um, material that makes up Earth. It was once a dust grain. So you can think about the very self-centered reason of trying to understand dust, and that is we need to understand dust in order to know how we got here. Okay, so moving on, um, I want to spend just a few minutes talking about some of the techniques we use to study dust and to give you a little primer for understanding um, some of the things I'm going to talk about later on in this talk. And I want to mention that if anyone has questions in the midst of this, you know, feel free to raise your hand and, and ask them or just shout them out. Okay, so to start, let's just review briefly the electromagnetic spectrum, just so we're all on the same page about what we're talking about. Um, you can see here the range of wavelengths that light comes in. Um, there's a huge range of wavelengths stretching all the way from gamma rays down to radio waves, things that have sizes, you know, long sizes, like sizes of feet or many feet. Um, and the tiny little range right here 
is what we can actually see, so visible light. And it's a very small fraction of the electromagnetic spectrum. So just to the longer wavelength side of this is infrared light. And I'm going to talk a lot about infrared light because infrared light is one of the main ways we look at dust. So infrared light goes from just longer wavelengths than what we can see with our eyes all the way out to um, wavelengths approaching a centimeter. So you can get all the way out, well, approaching a millimeter, sorry, approaching a millimeter. So uh, these wavelengths of light are very important for studying dust. So uh, just to mention a few of the techniques um, we use to look at the light from dust, um, one of the main ones is spectroscopy. And spectroscopy, as I'm sure many of you know uh, already, but I just want to mention in case you're um, feeling a little rusty, is when you take the light and break it apart so you can see um, how bright this um, light is at each different wavelength. So this is very similar, the same exact thing you would do with a prism with sunlight. You split it up and you see the rainbow, and that is the spectrum of the sun. Um, so here are two spectra of two different kinds of stars. And the key points are that there you get the intensity of the light versus wavelengths. So another thing we can do is called photometry. And that is when you take a filter that grabs all of the wavelengths of light between some range and totals them up. And so if you were to do that, um, the, all of the wavelength in this green filter here, you'd have this measurement for the red star. This is the total light in that, that, um, that's intercepted by that filter. And then you'd have a separate measurement here for this blue star. And you can see that in this band, this filter, um, the red star is much brighter than the blue star. So this is photometry. And we use photometry very often, and many of the pretty pictures that I'm showing you are based on this technique, um, because you can measure the light in a given range of wavelengths, and then you can do things like create an image that highlights how different wavelengths look. Um, and so it's important to note that a lot of the wave, um, images I'm going to show you um, are of wavelengths our eye can't see. So in order to look at these, we create just a, a plain one-dimensional image or one-color one image of this object and then assign different wavelengths of light different colors, such as these. Then you add them all together and you have an image that you can see these different colors representing different, um, the strengths of these different wavelengths. Um, but this is actually all infrared, um, the, the actual photons we're looking at here came from infrared wavelengths that we can't see with our eyes. Okay, so having gone over these basic techniques, um, let me now tell you a bit about how we study interstellar dust. So um, as you may have guessed from going through these spectroscopy and photometry things, like all other astronomical subjects, um, we get almost all of our information from light. So understanding um, what light is telling us about dust. Um, but there is one, this is one of the few um, subjects in astronomy where we can say that there is other information aside from just the light. And this is pretty cool and I think is really exciting. Um, there was a mission called Stardust um, that was launched in 1999 that went out in the solar system with this big aerogel thing up here. So each of these little holes has a sticky substance in it that catches dust grains as they fly into it. Um, so this mission was sent actually, for the most part, to catch dust grains from a comet. 
Um, and it did all these loops um, to catch up with this comet Wild 2 and gather some of its dust. But during the mission, um, it was also subject to some amount of dust that was from interstellar space. And what's really neat is that you can tell the difference between these two types of dust because of the direction of their impact into this gel. And over the last uh, many years, so the one additional thing about this is cool, is these samples are brought back. So there was a little lander that detached from this satellite and landed in the desert somewhere in Nevada, I think, um, and brought back these samples. So people, including um, a whole bunch of people who did this through a project, citizen science project called Stardust at Home, which I believe you can still join if you're interested, identified all of the dust grains that impacted into this aerogel and were able to find seven dust grains that they think are probably interstellar dust grains. So this is really exciting. This was just announced um, this year, I believe. So uh, there's a lot of work to be done understanding the composition and all of the properties about these dust grains that we think are interstellar. So I wanted to highlight this first because this is super cool and rare for astronomy to actually have a physical sample of what you're looking at. But for the most part, all of the other information we have about dust is from its light and from the way that it interacts with light. And there are three main processes um, that go into that. Uh, the first of those is absorption. So in this process, a photon is just absorbed by the dust grain and heats it up a tiny bit. Um, another one is scattering. That's where a, dust, a photon is just reflected off in a different direction by the dust grain. And the last one is emission. So that is the dust grain emitting its own light. Um, so just to, to pause for a second, um, I'm sure you're all familiar with the Pleiades. Uh, so one of the beautiful constellations we can see in the night sky. And it is actually a reflection nebula. And you can see here in this image all of this light um, that highlights this material around the star. That is light that is scattered off of dust grains um, and coming back to us. So um, you can see right away from one of your favorite constellations the effects of dust on how, um, how these objects look. So I want to focus in uh, for a moment on the emission from dust grains, though. So everything that has a temperature, um, every object that has some heat emits a bit of light. And the wavelength of that light depends on the temperature of the object. So for objects that have temperatures between 20 and 200 Kelvin, um, they emit infrared light. So when you get to very warm temperatures, you can have things emitting optical light. If you get very, very, very hot, you can have things emitting UV light. Um, but for things that are sort of our temperature and colder, uh, most of the light comes out in the infrared. So um, just as an example of how you can use this then to study dust, because dust has temperatures in the interstellar medium about 20 degrees Kelvin, Here's an object you're also probably very familiar with. This is the Orion Nebula and shown in visible light. So something, you may have seen something like this looking through a telescope, although I mean, this is a very beautiful image, so unlikely to be something you could um, see that much detail with your naked eye, but uh, or even with a telescope you look through. Um, but when we change wavelengths and look at this in infrared light, you can see something very different. Um, so in infrared light, all of the places in here that show up as very dark patches, 
can see up there, shine very brightly in the infrared. That's because all of those dark patches are from dust, and that dust is warm. It has a temperature of around 20 to 30 Kelvin, and so it emits a lot of infrared light. So for studying dust then, the infrared light is crucial because we're directly observing light coming from the dust. We don't have to infer its presence by the fact that some light is blocked from us, right? We can actually see dust. So that leads to um, a huge range of studies looking at infrared light, trying to understand dust. But the main problem with infrared light is that our atmosphere blocks almost all of it from getting to the ground. Um, so this plot shows um, the transmission of the atmosphere. So the orange stuff is uh, completely, so this is what the atmosphere lets through. Um, blue means it gets all the way down to the ground. So the, the visible light here all, makes it all the way down to the ground, basically. But when you go to longer wavelengths, the infrared here, a lot of the light gets blocked by the atmosphere. So if you keep going to longer wavelengths, that's when you get to radio waves, and you can observe those just fine through the Earth's atmosphere. But for infrared, it's a really big problem. So in order to get around that, uh, what we've had to do is send our infrared telescopes to space, which is very exciting. Um, so here are a few of the, the exciting telescopes that have been sent to space in the last uh, couple of decades. Um, one of the early telescopes that was put in space is the infrared astronomy, uh, in, well, IRAS, infrared astronomy satellite, I believe, um, which had a 57-centimeter mirror, and it did a, a map, made a map of the entire sky in a bunch of different wavelengths of infrared light, and this was really a pioneering effort in understanding where dust is and how it's, what its temperature is and what its properties are. Um, in 2003, there was a, a new telescope, Spitzer, that was sent up. Um, this has an 85 centimeter mirror, so somewhat bigger than IRAS, and it also operated at shorter wavelengths. It was also cooled, so it was made even colder compared to IRAS, and that let it see much fainter light from the infrared sky. And Spitzer is still up there, although it had ran out of coolant a while back, but now it just operates in um, some of its shortest wavelength bands, so just, just longer than what our eye can see. And then in 2009, um, the Herschel Space Observatory was launched. So this is very exciting because this is a much larger mirror, so a 3.5 meter mirror, so that's four times larger than Spitzer. Um, Herschel was not cooled uh, because it was very expensive and difficult to cool a telescope that big. Um, although there's been a lot of progress in trying to do that. And Herschel was able to see um, very fine details in the distribution of interstellar dust because of its larger mirror compared to Spitzer. Um, okay, so given all these tools we have to study dust, uh, what have we learned? And what are the basic properties of dust? So first off, and this is something that often gets asked, um, interstellar dust is nothing like dust in your house, <laughs> which is good because dust in your house is kind of gross. Um, so it involves a lot of hair and, and stuff like that. Um, so interstellar dust is actually much more like sand um, and soot. So there's sort of two compositions, we think, for interstellar dust. And one of them is silicate-based, and that's, a lot, that's the same composition as glass um, and sand and various things. And one of them is more carbon-rich, and that is more probably like graphite and soot. 
and, and various other products like, um, that are made out of um, carbon-rich material. Um, my personal favorite kind of dust is actually closer to auto exhaust than either of those things. So out there in space, in addition to the grains of dust, there are very small dust particles that border on molecules. And these are, these tend to, these are carbonaceous molecules that have rings of carbons with hydrogens attached. They're called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And one of the first ways that these were identified in space was by the comparison with auto exhaust. So this is a spectrum here of the Orion bar, which is a part of the Orion nebula. And this is in the infrared. And you see these, these features here. And people were not sure for a long time what they were. Um, but in this paper, uh, uh, Almondola, Thielens, and Barker compared this to a spectrum of auto exhaust, which had a lot of these polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons in it, and found a great match. So they had this excellent title, um, Polycyclic Aromatic Hydrocarbons and the Unidentified Infrared Emission Bands, Auto Exhaust Along the Milky Way. So that's kind of cool. Exclamation point in the title doesn't happen super often. Um, so I'll come back to PAUSE because I'm going to show you a little bit about what I've learned uh, in my research about PAUSE later in the talk. Um, so the other thing you might want to know about dust, and I love this fact, I think this is so cool, um, is how much of it there is out there in the interstellar medium. And it's hard to just say like, okay, well, in the interstellar medium there are X number of particles per cubic centimeter. That doesn't really tell you that much information. So let's think about it um, in an analogy. So if we were to take an average chunk of the Milky Way's interstellar medium and compress it so that it had the same density as the air we're breathing right now, um, the, that would be so dusty that you wouldn't be able to see your fingers at the end of your hand. Um, so compared to the air we're breathing, compared to you know, our experience of gas at this density, the interstellar medium of the Milky Way is very dusty, very, very dusty. Um, which is kind of cool. You <laughs> um, maybe wouldn't have expected in the vast emptiness of space that there's so much dust, but there really is a lot. Um, so the other thing you might want to understand about dust is how big these particles are. And actually what we talked about earlier, um, the, the thing that Trumpler observed, reddening, tells us actually what the size, uh, the average size of these particles are. And we can understand reddening by thinking of light um, as waves on an ocean and our dust grain or dust grains as boats sitting on it. So if you're a boat that is very, very big compared to the waves that are around you, you don't care at all. And the waves are just totally destroyed when they run into you, right? So there's no, um, the waves don't pass by you. Those little tiny waves when they run into your battleship just go away. Um, on the other hand, air, aircraft carrier, sorry. <laughs> My specialty is, you know, astronomy. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so on the other side of things, if you can imagine very, very large waves compared to the size of your boat, um, those waves just go right past you. They don't care that you're there at all. And your boat, um, you know, doesn't stop them in any way. So this is the same exact thing that's happening with light and dust grains. So you can imagine if the wavelength of light is small compared to the size of the dust grain, when it encounters the dust grain, it gets absorbed or scattered. It gets sent out of the, it doesn't go through it. 
But when you have longer wavelengths that are big compared to the size of the dust grain, it can go right past the dust. It doesn't care that the dust is there. So the dust grain is very poor, bad at stopping light waves that are really big compared to its size. So what happens then is if you start off with a bunch of light, like say this, this is a spectrum from sunlight or something like that, um, and you send it through some cloud of dust, you end up getting rid of the shortest wavelengths of light, and you don't touch at all the longest wavelengths. And so what happens is that in visible light, at least, things look redder, right? I hope that makes sense. So by seeing which wavelengths of light get blocked by these dust grains most effectively, you then can infer what their size is. So when we do that, um, you find out that dust grains block blue optical light very efficiently, um, but red optical light not as efficiently. So the size of dust grains is somewhere in between around the wavelengths of optical light that we see. So tenths of a micron sort of size. And we can observe this uh, process happening when we look at these clouds of dust that are in the interstellar medium. So this is a, a images of a cloud named Barnard 68, which is a very dark um, globule. Actually, I'm not, it may be a Bach globule, named after Bach, who you just heard about. Um, but this is a very dark cloud with lots of dust. And when you look at short wavelengths of light, you don't see through it at all. It looks just like a hole, right? You can't see anything. But you can see as you go to longer and longer wavelengths of light, eventually you just see straight through it because the dust is very ineffective at blocking those wavelengths of light. So if we were to put this all together, um, you know, by assigning these different wavelengths, something that uh, resembles the visual spectrum, here's an image of what that would look like. And you can see, as you look at stars that are part of the way behind this cloud, they look redder. And that is this reddening that tells us what the size of these grains are. Okay, so just to summarize, uh, we know that there's a lot of dust out there because of the way it interacts with light. Um, in the Milky Way, it's quite dusty, sort of about 1% of the mass of the interstellar medium is in dust. Um, and it interacts with light in a way that reddens light and um, absorbs some of the light. So I want to move on now um, to some slightly different subjects and tell you a bit about my interests in interstellar dust and what I've been hoping to learn uh, using these infrared telescopes to study dust. So um, just before we get started, uh, this image here is a small chunk of the Spitzer map of the Pleiades, which is really beautiful. So this is showing all of the emission from that dust that's reflecting starlight. And I, if you haven't seen, seen it, I highly recommend downloading that as your wallpaper because it's beautiful. Um, Okay, so what do I want to learn about dust? I really would like to know um, where do most of the dust grains form? Uh, what is the main source of dust in the interstellar medium? I'd also really like to know how the, the life cycle of a dust grain changes depending on what kind of galaxy it lives in. So if it lives in a galaxy like the Milky Way, or if it lives in a very different galaxy, is its life um, extremely different, or does it experience basically the same processes throughout its life? And then I'd like to understand um, how the properties of dust in different galaxies affect how their ISM works. And if there's any difference when we look at galaxies that are very different from the Milky Way, um, do they have, form stars in a different way because their dust has um, unique properties? And so those are the key questions that I'm, I'm really interested in. 
And so I'd like to go into a bit now about the life cycle of dust and what might change depending on the kind of galaxy um, this dust grain is sitting in. So in order to understand that, um, we need to think about the processes that form dust and destroy it and what happens to the dust while it's sitting in the interstellar medium. So how does dust form? Well, one of the main sources of dust is from the atmospheres of evolved stars. And this is a really spectacular process. Um, so this image shows the nebula that's created when a star uh, ages and starts to shed its outer envelope. And as that happens, um, you know, this star has spent its lifetime generating new material, so enriching itself with metals, um, heavier elements. And um, in the center, you know, where this star is, is sitting um, and sort of blowing up this big puffy atmosphere, uh, things are very warm, things are very dense, and there's a lot of heavy elements sitting around. And those are the perfect conditions for forming dust grains because all of these heavy materials um, can come together and coagulate and form these grains. And so the outflows that occur from these old evolved stars are one of the main sources of dust, we think, that generates all of the dust we see in the interstellar medium. Um, just because, might as well, here's another beautiful picture of one of these nebulae. Um, this is the red rectangle, uh, which is another object where there's an evolved star that's kind of losing its outer layers um, in this wind where a lot of dust is being generated. Um, okay, so dust can form from these atmospheres of old stars. Dust can also be formed in supernova explosions. And this is kind of exciting. Um, so you can imagine that the same conditions, warm, dense, rich and heavy elements, also happen in supernovae uh, because they just produced a huge amount of, of heavy elements when this star exploded. And here's an object, Cassiopeia A. Um, this is a supernova remnant. This is shown in a bunch of different wavelengths, X-rays, optical, and infrared. And when we look at a spectrum in the infrared of this object, you can see, um, first of all, a bunch of different lines that are the emission from all of these um, new elements that were created in the supernova. So, for instance, we got argon and sulfur and neon, iron, various things. But we also see, underlying that, is this smooth bump here. And that is from dust that the supernova just, remnant just formed. So this is newly formed dust. And we can um, count up how much dust was formed in Cassiopeia A. And it's something like a few tenths of the mass of the sun of dust formed there. So um, this one star generated a few tenths of the mass of the sun in dust. Um, just a couple of other exciting supernova that are known to have formed dust. Um, you may remember this object here, supernova 1987A. Um, it was you know, spectacular supernova that exploded in the large Magellanic Cloud, which is one of our nearest neighboring galaxies. Um, and this is it, not super spectacular looking, but very exciting. There's definitely a point right in the middle there, and that is the detection of supernova 1987A in the infrared. From that, you can infer that it produced something like uh, the mass of the sun in dust. And this has been followed up um, with the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. This is a telescope in Chile that I'll mention at the end, a uh, telescope array in Chile. Um, and they confirmed that there is about a solar mass worth of dust that formed in supernova 1987A. 
it is a lot of dust. <laughs> um, so one other favorite supernova remnant is this one, E0102. I like it because I studied this supernova remnant as part of my PhD thesis and also used um, Spitzer to try to find out how much dust it made. And the spectrum we observed is right here in gray, and we were able to model that as only a few thousandths of a solar mass of dust. So either this supernova made a lot less dust than the other ones, or there's a bunch of it that's cold over here that we haven't observed yet. And so we're trying to observe this with um, the ALMA array, which I'll tell you about later on, to try to understand how much dust is created in that supernova. Okay, so this is great. Dust can form from AGB stars, can also form from supernova. But the tricky thing is that supernovas are also destroy dust. Um, so when a supernova happens, it generates this big shock wave that goes out into the interstellar medium. And when that shock wave encounters interstellar gas and dust, the dust grains can be destroyed. So they can shatter, and then they can be kind of bombarded with hot gas that basically makes them dissolve. Um, so that's a process called sputtering. And we can see this happening in the Milky Way. Um, so this is supernova 1006 and its remnant. And this very bright region up here is a shock wave that's currently running into a lot more gas and dust. And we can observe the process of dust being destroyed by this shock wave. So the unfortunate thing for our understanding of the life cycle of dust, maybe, is that even though a supernova can make something like a solar mass of dust, potentially, can also destroy 10 times that much. So supernova are probably a net sink for dust, not a source. So the, one of the key questions um, that we've been trying to understand is when you then have all of these processes, um, AGB or old stars producing dust, supernova producing dust, supernova destroying dust, do you end up with the right amount of dust? And the answer is probably no. Um, and in fact, one of the mysterious things is that we think dust must have some way to grow in the interstellar medium itself. So this is a process that's not well understood yet, but just this basic budgeting of where dust is coming from and where it's going tells us that there has to be some other source of dust that we don't yet understand. So my research has been trying to understand um, this dust life cycle and how much dust there is and its properties by looking at other galaxies. And one of my favorite galaxies, and one of the ones I look at frequently, is this guy up here. This is the Small Magellanic Cloud. Um, you can see it from the southern hemisphere. Uh, it's a dwarf galaxy. It's very small. And it's interacting with its partner here, the Large Magellanic Cloud. And these two galaxies are um, in an in a orbit around the Milky Way that may or may not uh, be permanent. They may be on their first pass through and on their way out again. Um, but they're very exciting objects that we can study in great detail because they're so close by currently. And one of the things um, I've been working on is looking at the dust in these objects. And this is a map um, from the Herschel Space Observatory of what the dust, where the dust is distributed in the small Magellanic Cloud. Um, what we can learn from this map is that the small Magellanic Cloud actually has 10 times less dust per unit gas than the Milky Way does. Um, so this is uh, a measurement you can make by comparing the amount of dust you see to the amount of gas you see. 
And this is interesting because the Magellanic Clouds, so the small Magellanic Cloud in particular, has a lot less heavy elements available. So this may uh, make sense that a lower fraction of, that there's less of the dust because there's just less of the raw material to make it. Another thing I've been looking at is trying to understand where these small grains that I told you about, these polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, live in the small Magellanic Cloud. And as part of my um, PhD thesis, I made this map um, which shows where the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons are. So in the yellow part, that shows where there's a lot of them, and the blue part shows where there's not very much at all. And it turns out that the small Magellanic Cloud has even less of these than the Milky Way does, even compared to this 10 times lower ma dust mass to start with. So these things are very rare in the small Magellanic Cloud, and one of the things that we're trying to understand is why. Why are there so much fewer of these, these aromat polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons than there are in the Milky Way? And one of the reasons this is important is that um, dust grains, and particularly these small dust grains called PAWS, um, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, are one of the most important ways that the interstellar medium is heated. And here's a little cartoon that shows you how that works. So it'll play again, and I'll describe all of the steps. But what you see here is a bunch of gas. It's got some dust grains in it. Uh, dust grain will show up. There it is. Um, and these are some new hot stars, and they're sending their photons in here, and they get intercepted by the dust grain. And every once in a while, the dust grain, when it intercepts a photon, ejects one of its electrons. And that electron goes off and heats up the gas. And then the later steps in this process involve collisionally exciting different atoms in the gas that then radiate that energy away. So this is the cartoon that illustrates the sort of thermal balance in the interstellar medium. And it's controlled by the presence of these small dust grains. So my main research focus because of that has been trying to understand where these dust grains are and how many of them there are. And to do that, like um, with the small Magellanic Cloud I showed you earlier, um, we map the distribution by looking at these infrared wavelengths. For example, this is a galaxy called M101 over here. And this color table in green shows where you see the infrared emission from these small dust grains. And um, as you go out in this galaxy, the colors you see here start very, very green and then get very red on the outside. And that's the signature of you losing these small grains. So what we've learned from doing this is that the properties of these small grains vary a lot depending on which galaxy you're in. Um, the other thing I've been working on is using observations from the Herschel Space Observatory to extend this kind of study to a wide variety of galaxies. And um, the sample of galaxies I've been looking at is shown here. This is a, a survey called Kingfish, the key insights into nearby galaxies, a far infrared survey with Herschel. It is an excellent acronym, and I will stand for no criticism of the acronym. Um, <laughs> and what we did was to map um, uh, this big group of galaxies here with the Herschel Space Observatory and combine that with existing data from the Spitzer um, Observatory. And with that information, we can map out the different kinds of dust and where they're located in these galaxies. So, um, the unfortunate news for the moment, though, is that on April 29th, 2013, Herschel ran out of coolant. 
So this was actually expected, and it outlived its lifetime by um, a several months at least, which is really great because they just squeezed in a few more observations. Um, it was a very productive satellite, but unfortunately, when Spitzer or Herschel is out of coolant, it's no longer useful. So Spitzer's or sorry, Herschel's mission is over. Spitzer's is still ongoing. Um, so the question you might have is, okay, well, what's next? What are we going to do now that our biggest infrared space telescope is out of coolant and useless. So the last few minutes, I want to talk about the future of how we're going to study interstellar dust. And the future is very bright. Um, one of the main reasons the future is so bright is because of this lovely thing here. This is the James Webb Space Telescope. It's a six and a half meter telescope that's constructed of, of these interlocking um, segments. It's set to be launched in 2018, um, and it's a very impressive instrument or telescope. Uh, here's a, a view of several of these mirror segments being put together in the lab. Um, this is just a few of them. And when it's finished, it will be a very, very large telescope in space that will see details much finer than what Herschel could see and see things that are much, much fainter than what Herschel could see. So um, this little video is going to show you what happens to the telescope once it gets launched, and it's pretty spectacular. So the first thing that happens is this big sun shield spreads out. So for scale, uh, when this thing spreads out, you'll see it happen shortly. Um, it is the size of a tennis court, and it's made of four layers of this um, material that blocks the sun, and it has to unfurl once it's in space to shield the, the rest of the telescope and let it get cold so it can see these, um, this infrared emission without interference from its own temperature. Um, so here's all of the sun shield being finished. It's going to deploy some solar panels. And eventually, I'll let this keep playing, um, the telescope mirror itself will unfold. And after that, um, you know, once it starts to be commissioned and calibrated, it will be ready for science. Um, so <laughs> it'll work, don't worry, it'll work. There's very, very good people, many of them here in Arizona who are working on that. Um, and some, yeah? Uh, no, it does not need adaptive optics because it's in space and there's no effect of the atmosphere to mess things up. Um, the shield just keeps it cold, it keeps the sunlight off of the telescope. Um, so just a few r amazing facts about James Webb. It's so sensitive that it can detect the infrared emission from a bumblebee on the moon. It also um, has such good resolution that it can see something the size of a penny 24 miles away. So this is a very impressive telescope that's going to give us some great insights into dust um, and galaxies across the history of the universe. The other exciting um, telescope that we have to look forward to and that is actually operational now is the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. And I mentioned this uh, a couple of times uh, earlier. This is a telescope that consists of 66 antennas that operate at sub-millimeter, so just around uh, wavelengths of a millimeter and longer. Um, those are the wavelengths it observes. So they fall over here. And this lets us study 
very cold dust and the very longest wavelength dust emission that we can see. And this is already operational, and not all of the 66 antennas are ready just yet, but it's getting very close. And there's some early science highlights that are really exciting from ALMA. One of those is that it's um, already been used to observe dust emission from very, very high redshift galaxies. So these are galaxies that are up to, you know, several hundred million years after the Big Bang. So these are really early universe objects. And you can see some of these red blobs that are in the center of these images. Okay, there might be not spectacular images, but this is a galaxy, you know, huge distances away from us. Alma lets us observe its dust emission. And the really spectacular image that I hope you all have seen so far, um, this came out a, a week or two ago. Um, this is an observation by Alma of a protoplanetary disk. So this is a star um, with a disk around it that is forming planets. And this is the dust emission, the infrared light. So this is very long wavelengths, but it's still probably infrared light coming from the dust in this disk. And what you can see, so in the center there's a star, but these gaps that are cleared out are most likely due to the formation of planets. So the coagulation of these dust grains into bigger and bigger objects, eventually planets sweeping up the dust in these rings. So this is the kind of spectacular thing we can hope to understand about dust um, using ALMA. Uh, this is, I think, 400 light years-ish away, <laughs> but I'd have to double check. Okay, so to wrap up, I just want to highlight a few of the things I've covered. First off, even though dust is only a small fraction of the mass of the interstellar medium in our galaxy, it's absolutely crucial to how it works. And it's very important for the formation of stars. Um, it carries the raw material that forms planets and us. Uh, it also lets us study the evolution of galaxies over the history of the universe. And as I'm sure you agree, makes the very prettiest astronomical images you can look at. Um, so thank you very much. And I'll just leave you with a favorite quote. So. <laughs> Thank you very much, Karen. We have time for questions from the audience. We have a question up here. <clears throat> Regarding the last picture that you just showed of the, the um, uh, star with the, that one, um, in as much as that there are rings around it, are there actually um, protoplanets uh, in, in orbit around that star that, that makes those rings? It's a great question. So very likely there is at least one protoplanet. Um, there may be more, but it could be that this most innermost ring um, in the center here is where there's a planet. And then there are resonances um, because of the orbit of that planet that could clear out other rings in the disk. That's one possibility. Um, the other is that there are multiple planets forming in the disk, and each of the gaps is because of it. But I think most likely the explanation is that there, the resonances between the orbit of one planet and different locations in the disk lead to these gaps. You have spoken a great deal about the wavelength of the light. Have you also studied the polarization of the light to help us elucidate the origin as well as the uh, evolution of these dust grains and the 
um, atoms and molecules involved with that. And also, in addition, when you're talking about the density, how many dust grains per, let's say, a cubic meter? Um, okay, well, so as to the first question, uh, the polarization, it's an excellent point. So polarization does tell you a lot about dust to, um, to answer your question. And the reason is that dust grains, um, there's also in the interstellar medium a magnetic field. And these dust grains are ever so slightly magnetic and they align themselves to be parallel to the magnetic field. And so when light is then coming through the interstellar medium, um, it gets more absorbed more parallel to the magnetic field because these dust grains are aligned along the field lines. So we can learn a lot about dust from the polarization properties, and it's an excellent question. Um, and I didn't go into it. There's a lot that could be said on that topic, and I'd be very happy to talk afterwards about that. Um, as to your second question, uh, so the density per meter cubed of dust is not something I have off the top of my head. Um, and it's actually, uh, you have to specify what size grain you're talking about because there's a whole distribution of grain sizes. I think the most useful thing is to say that there's on average one particle of gas per cubic centimeter in the interstellar medium. And so then um, you can think about how much of a, how large of a region you'd have to get to have 1% of the mass made up of dust. And it's pretty big, so it's going to be one grain of dust per quite large area, um, is my impression. You have a question here. Uh, <clears throat> this is a question about the angular resolution of the ALMA telescope. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me roughly what the angular dimension is of the outermost ring that's shown there? Uh, the angular dimension of the outermost ring. I believe this whole image is, uh, it's going to be less than an arc second. So this is, this whole object would be on the order of a couple of arc seconds, I think, or less. Um, so the resolution of ALMA is very high. ALMA can get fractions of an arc second, probably um, less than, you know, point z it can get up to 0 0.05, 0 0.01 something arc seconds in its most extended configuration. It's um, very, very impressive because they can spread those antennas out over huge distances and then you basically have the power of a telescope to resolve something um, based on the, the distance between the antennas, uh, which can be very large, kilometers, basically. Any other questions? If not, I actually have a question because I learned something new tonight. Oh. I knew that dust could be formed in supernova explosions. I didn't realize that the shock wave from the supernova will destroy dust. When you say the dust is destroyed, mm -hmm. what happens to the matter? Does it just become individual atoms or uh, molecules? It's a great question. So, I mean, the, the basic thing that happens is these grains shatter against each other, so they become smaller and smaller mm -hmm. fragments. And then at the same time, they're getting bombarded by all of these very hot um, uh, gas particles. And so it does actually um, get down to splitting it up into its individual atoms in some case. But you can mm -hmm. also be left with just much smaller, smaller dust particles. very, very well, tiny I, dust grains. Yeah, I, don't, I guess it's semantics. Like, what's the difference between a brown dwarf and a Jupiter? Yeah. Right? It's <laughs> like, when do you call it dust? How, how big does the grain have to be? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Uh, we have one lecture left in the fall 2014 semester. Two weeks from tonight, on December the 8th, David Levy will be here. He's a famous comet hunter, known back in the old days before we had automated telescopes. He used to scan the night skies. In fact, he still does, but he, it's hard to compete with the computers nowadays, to, and found so many comets. He's going to give a talk called A Night Watchman's Journey, 
which talks about his career in finding comets. He also has a few books that we'll have for sale. We'll have a book signing afterwards. Um, also, if you are not on our mailing list and you would like to be on our mailing list to get future communications from Stewart Observatory and about public outreach events, there is a sign-up sheet on the back table. I also have new flyers. If you came early and didn't grab one, feel free to grab one to get the schedule for next spring. The telescope is open if you want to brave the cold. I'll stamp assignments down here. Let's thank Dr. Sandstrom one more time.